0: Good morning, church. You can tell they give the uh, easiest passages to the interns. Can't wait to hear what I'm preaching next. It is uh, good to be with you, but as uh, Eric mentioned, this is a hard passage to hear, certainly a hard passage to preach. So let's invite the Lord to help us in both those endeavors. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we come before you as your gathered people this morning, asking you to do, Father, what only you can do, and that's illuminate it for us. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, as we read your prophet Micah this morning, may we know you better, may we love you more. And in all of it, would we know our Savior, Jesus, who has saved us from the pit of sin. We thank you, Father, for this time together. We pray your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't ask you to pay for it. I asked you to believe for it. Those were the words of prosperity gospel preacher Jesse Duplantis. What is he asking his congregation to believe for? A private jet. To the tune of 54 million dollars. What was wrong with the one that he had bought 12 years previous? Well, it would no longer fly around the world without stopping. Church, we we hear something like that, and I hope you recognize this morning what that request from that prosperity preacher is. It's greed. It's selfishness it's an abuse of power, it's an affront to God. We might even be able to take it a step further and call it an injustice. As God's gathered people here this morning, we hear something like that and know that it's wrong. Now, to be sure, greed, abuse of power, injustice is certainly not something that popped up with the advent of the private jet. It's been around a very long time, and we're gonna see some examples this morning as we dive in to Micah chapter 3 together. So, church, this morning I have good news and I have bad news. Which one do you want first? Bad news. That's the correct answer. We're gonna do bad news and then good news. Now, it shouldn't be uh, a complete shock to you that I have good news and I have bad news. That is the title of the sermon series after all. But as a reminder for you, and give you a little bit of context for where we'll be this morning, the prophet Micah is ministering in a really bad time for the people of Israel. Their sin and their disobedience to the promise or covenant made with God has finally caught up to them. The northern kingdom has already been taken over. They've been off into exile. And now the southern kingdom, Judah, sees the writing on the wall. They are next if they don't turn back to covenant faithfulness. Now, it's important to recognize and understand what that promise or that covenant is that I'm talking about. It gives us great context for this chapter and the whole book of Micah. This covenant, most often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant, served to set Israel apart from the other nations as God's people. It was centered around God giving his divine law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now that covenant is a little bit different than the one given previous to Abraham or after to King David. This covenant is a conditional covenant. God's blessings are promised to his people if they obey him. If Israel obeys God's law, he will bless them. And if they disobey, he will punish them. The blessings and curses and punishments are laid plain for us to see in Deuteronomy 28, if you want some light reading after the service. The central promise of that covenant being God's people with God's presence In God's promised land and we see that come true in the book of Joshua where the promised land is given to God's people. Now the framework of that covenant is important for us to understand this morning because it's one of the reasons why Tommy mentioned a couple weeks ago that we can't just take the book of Micah and transplant it to 2021. There's context here. We are not under the Mosaic law as given to God's people. Praise the Lord. We are not under the old covenant, we are under the new covenant, ushered in with the blood of Jesus. And yet, church, there is still much to be learned from Micah chapter 3 this morning. So I'm going to do something a little bit crazy, a little bit out of the norm for us here at Castleton, and I have four points for us this morning instead of three. So those four points are going to serve as we walk in church to a courtroom scene together. We are going to view Micah chapter 3 through this courtroom scene. You have opened the doors. You see the judge in front of you. You see the prosecutor. You see the defense attorney. And our four points this morning will reflect that reality. In verses 1 through 8, we will see Micah's lawsuit. In verses 9 through 11, Micah's verdict. In verse 12, we will see Micah's sentence. And finally, in it all, we will see God's vindication. And my hope is that we would grow in the love for our Lord Jesus this morning, who has paid our penalty and saved us from the sentence of death. So first... Micah's lawsuit. We'll spend a little bit more time here than the other three points. But Micah 3, verse 1. And I said, "Here you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? In the first verse, we get our first indictment. Who's being indicted in Micah's lawsuit? Well, the heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. The leadership of God's people are being indicted. And we get a rhetorical question that will frame the rest of this chapter. Is it not for you to know justice? This is rhetorical, and the obvious answer was yes. Of course they were to know justice. It was actually quite literally written out for them to teach and to follow and to obey. But even more so than the to know, it's not an intellectual to know. We could also read it as, is it not for you to know and to administer justice? If anyone was to know and to administer justice, certainly it would have been the leaders of God's people. But that's what our whole lawsuit is addressing this morning. They knew what they ought to do, but they certainly were not doing it. The scope of the sin and injustice and covenant unfaithfulness of God's people leads us to the highest echelons. Every branch of government, all leaders perverting justice, disobeying the covenant made to God. Church, the leaders are the problem. So what are they being indicted for? Verse 2, you hate the good and love the the evil. The leaders and rulers of God's people failed to see God's covenant with them as authoritative in their lives. How do we know that? Because they hate the good and love the evil. Can you get a worse indictment from God's spokesman than that? Can you get a statement more at odds with the good God of the universe than hating good And loving evil. We as Christ followers on on this side of history have the whole canon of scripture to speak to this. Old Testament and New Testament. We see this theme throughout. Here's a couple of examples. Amos 5.15. Hate evil and love good. Romans 12.9. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We recognize this as completely contrary to the message of our God. And now Micah moves into verses two and three to paint a grotesque word picture of the results of hating good and loving evil. I won't reread the passage this morning, but Micah here is not mincing words. You can't spin what Micah is saying in a good way. We get a picture of cannibalism, a picture of exploitation a picture of violence. Instead of shepherding God's people, the rulers and the leaders are treating them like animals to be used and to be eaten. Now, certainly, churches, Eric mentioned, this should be viewed as hyperbole. There wasn't active cannibalism going on among God's people. But Micah's language certainly drives the point home, doesn't it? Now, as promised in the Mosaic covenant, there will be consequences for this kind of unfaithfulness. Verse 4, they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Micah sees a time in the not too distant future where these leaders will cry to the Lord. And what will happen? God will not answer them. His favor and his blessing will be gone from them because they have made their deeds evil. Injustice will soon lead to the crumbling of everything they know. This was worst case scenario for God's people who, were, who had God's presence in God's promised land. This is worst case scenario. I want to pause here for a moment and recognize that injustice against God's people certainly is not something reserved for ancient Judah. We saw a picture of that with the private jet, and it's worth hammering home a little bit more. Recently, a podcast has come out. Maybe some of you have been listening with me. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This podcast explores the story of Mars Hill Church and her pastor, Mark Driscoll, in Seattle, Washington, a church that in 2014 had a weekly attendance of 15,000 people in one of, if not the most unchurched state in the country, yet as of January 1st, 2015, it had all crumbled away at the weight of toxic leadership, of pride, of manipulation. The leaders in that place stopped loving what was good, and it crumbled, all of it. This was not ancient Judah. This was Seattle, Washington in 2015. As someone that was living an hour south at that time, I remember being on the periphery of some of those conversations and my parents and pastor talking. And after that church had imploded and crumbled and all of those congregants sent away, I remember hearing stories of people walking into churches with a shell-shocked look on their face. What just happened? Right? People's faith crumbling, people losing their faith altogether certainly injustice is not something reserved for ancient judah one of the most heartbreaking parts of that podcast to listen to is the other leaders and the members of the congregation as they speak with regret could we have stopped this hurt could we have said something and spoke up against the injustice happening at our church among god's people Could we have called out the sin and saved the hurt and the heartache? Church, I hope we're never placed into that situation. But I think what many people at Mars Hill are reflecting the reality that they didn't deal with the seriousness of sin. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Do we view sin like Micah views sin? Our greed, our abuse of power, our pride, our manipulation. Do we view it in the same terms as Micah? Violently opposed to God's plan for his people. See, I think we must have a right view of sin if we are to have a right view of the salvation in Christ Jesus. Because if sin is something God doesn't really care about, if it's not really that big of a deal, if God could take it or leave it, then our salvation is cheap. It's pennies on the dollar. But we actually know what that salvation costs. The most expensive gift of all, God's own son. Dying a death he didn't deserve so that we could be made right with God through the spilling of Jesus' blood. That's a glorious truth. That's That's not a cheap one. Many in our day and culture see God's standard and his plan for his people as outdated. Even hateful. Yet church, we know it as the firm foundation on which to build our lives. When some people, some who even claim Christ, distort his word and his standard, we must join with the prophet Micah and say that they hate the good and love the evil. Now I think it's one thing to talk about telling other people that, But church, do we have a view of sin in our own lives in line with scripture? Violently opposed to God's plan for his people. What about that show on Netflix that you watch, that you know is not in line with God's standard? Let's call it for what it is. That's evil. Opposed to God's plan for his people. What about the... Extra drink you take puts you over the limit. That's evil, opposed to God's plan for His people. What about that time clock at work? No one's gonna see when you clock in and clock out. You'll give yourself an extra buck. Evil, opposed to God's plan for His people. Church, by the power of the Holy Spirit working to transform our lives. I hope and pray that we have a regular and consistent view of sin as evil. Church, I hope we love good and hate evil as commanded in Scripture. It certainly would have saved heartache and the crumbling of the spiritual empire that was Mars Hill. Now, in Micah's lawsuit, he moves to a second group of people that he is going to indict the so called peace prophets. I'll read verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets... Who lead my people astray... Who cry peace when they have something to eat... But declare war against him... Who puts nothing into their mouths... Therefore it shall be night to you... Without vision... And darkness to you without divination... The sun shall go down on the prophets... And the day shall be black over them... The seers shall be disgraced... The diviners put to shame... They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Now, prophets in the Bible do a couple of things regularly. They call people to repentance, and they call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. That's a really easy way to tell if a spokesman is sent by God or not. This group does not appear to be from God, do they? How do we know this? They lead people astray, they cry peace when they have nothing to eat, declare war against those who don't give them anything. These prophets sound more like conmen than spokesmen by God. But as I was digging into this passage, all the commentaries agreed these peace prophets had a prophetic role among God's people that they were misusing. They were abusing God's given role to them. And in doing so, declaring peace when actually judgment would come. Right? Think about it this way. If you were to go into a doctor and man, all morning you've been having some chest pains and it's really tight and you're out of breath and you can barely walk or see straight and you just barely get to the doctor and you sit down, obviously in all kinds of pain. And the doctor looks at you and asks you a couple questions and he says, you know what? I think you're going to be okay. You should drink some water and some aspirin you'll be all right. Church, we recognize that for what it is. That's malpractice. He's sending you home to have a massive heart attack when he should be admitting you for a triple bypass. That's what these prophets are doing to God's people, leading them to a certain death apart from God's blessing. And as promised, there will be judgment for them. Verses 6 and 7, the gifts that they are abusing will be taken from them. They are disgraced and shame follows. God will judge them and shut their mouths. But then comes verse 8. And Micah draws a sharp and beautiful contrast between himself and these so-called peace prophets who were abusing their role. Micah in verse 8 is not only exposing the proper place of a prophet sent by God, but also exposing God's heart for his people. But as for me, I am filled with power, filled with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare his transgression and to Israel his sin. God's, God's heart for Micah and his people is justice and might to call people back to repentance, back to covenant faithfulness. What a contrast that is at the end describing Micah to the leaders and the rulers of the house of Israel in verse 1. But as we move into our second point this morning, Micah's verdict, we enter back in to the courtroom. Verses 9 through 11. Hear this, you heads of house of Jacob, And rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its head gives judgment for a price. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Micah in verses 9 through 11 is given a summary judgment of sorts. Now Micah is not thinking about our judicial system in the year 2021, but a summary judgment is a legal term. A summary judgment is when a judge issues a verdict without a full trial. It is a judgment based simply on the facts at hand. And what does he do? He declares them guilty. This time, it's not a rhetorical question. It is a strong statement. These leaders detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Micah boils down the specifics of his lawsuit to disregarding and disobeying God's law. If God's people follows God's law, it is a straight line to God's blessing. And they are making that line crooked and hard to follow with twisted decisions and conduct. Verse 10. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. One commenter described this as urban renewal with vengeance. Under these leaders and with the safety of God's presence dwelling in his temple... Building projects in Jerusalem had flourished. Without a spiritual eye, all of it looked magnificent. But Micah, with the spirit of the Lord, was not fooled. He pronounces his verdict on those leaders who build Zion with blood. A clear violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Church, I hope at this point... You are getting the complete and utter failure of God's leaders to hold fast to God's covenant. But unfortunately, I still have more bad news on the way. Verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us no disaster shall come upon us. The root of the injustice and the unfaithfulness of God's leaders is the establishment of Israel cares more about money than they care about the covenant made with God, so much so that they are enriching themselves, judgment for a bride, teach for a price, divination for money. First Timothy, 6:10 proves true in this circumstance. The love of money is the root of all evil. And yet, even in this disobedient state, they claim to profess faith and protection in the Lord. And they claim faith for their ends. They go so far as to distort God's covenant. No disaster shall come upon us. But that's actually the exact opposite of what God said when he laid out the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. Instead of warning the people and calling them to obedience, instead of following God's law as given to the leaders, they are feeding themselves and God's people empty spiritual mottos and platitudes. Their profession of faith without justice is lifeless. Church, May it never be so that in our midst would we gloss over sin in our own lives or in the life of our church with empty platitudes and mottos or lead people to a false God or a a false gospel. There can be no message other than this on which we stake our lives. Sin is the problem and Jesus is the answer. You might think we're getting close to the end of the passage here. Josh, where is that good news you promised? And unfortunately, I have a little bit more bad news. Maybe the sermon uh, series should have been called Bad News, Bad News, Bad News, Great News. I don't know. Take it up and tell me. And that comes to our third point this morning Micah's sentence in verse 12. Let's review our case up until this point really quickly. The indictments have been filed against the establishment of Judah. The verdict has been pronounced guilty. They have disregarded God's covenant with his people. They care more about riches and power than they care about the covenant. Yet, after they are found guilty, there's still more work left to be done. In our courtroom here this morning, if you saw someone judged guilty handcuffed, but then the the court bailiff walks up to him, unlocks the handcuff, and he walks out the front door. Is justice done? No, of course not. A sentence must be pronounced and carried out for justice to be done, and that's exactly what happens to Judah. Verse 12, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of a house, a wooded weight, height. We are removed from ancient Judah, quite removed. So I suspect that sentence doesn't land with the force that it should. For God's people, that would have landed like a thousand tons of bricks, I can imagine Micah in his sermon saying this in an audible gasp amongst God's people. This is as bad of sentence as could come to God's people. The two things that were central to the covenant, God's presence in his temple and God's people in the promised land will be taken away. Covenant unfaithfulness will not go unpunished. Micah, again, does not mince words here. God's promised land will be plowed as a field, turned upside down, uprooted and destroyed. Jerusalem, a heap of ruins. I think back a few weeks ago, when the images splashed across our TV screens and our news feeds was of the condo collapse in Florida. 98 people dead. Now, when preventable tragedy like that's hit, we are sad, we're angry, we're upset, we're confused. And yet, as I was feeling that range of emotions, the rubble piled on top of each other, just emphasize those even more. You saw the rubble and you knew there was no hope for the people underneath. That's what Micah is doing here. He is driving this point home. Finally, injustice has gone too far. Covenant disobedience to the point of no return. It can no longer go unpunished and it wouldn't. About 100 years after Micah's ministry, 587, Jerusalem is conquered by Babylon, the temple destroyed, God's people carried away into exile. You can read all about it in Lamentations chapter 1. It is a heartbreaking picture of disobedience. And yet, church, in that sentence that is carried out, we get our first glimpse of the good news I promised you earlier. Did you see it? God is always going to do what he said he is going to do. Church, that's good news. Even in the life and judgment of his people, God was faithful. He laid it out for him. He did what he said he was going to do. Church, that truth has not changed for you and I. Brothers and sisters, that's where our hope should be. That because God does what he says he is going to do, we can have hope in our Savior, Jesus. We can have hope in the ultimate justice to come. That leads us to our fourth and final point this morning, God's vindication. Micah's lawsuit is complete. Justice has won the day at terrible consequence to God's people, but justice has been served. I think it's easy for us to read a passage like that in the Old Testament and sit back a little bit and say, I am so happy I'm not those leaders. Can you believe it? They had God's plan and his standard right in front of them, and they didn't follow it? How stupid can you be? But church, if we're honest with ourselves, isn't that exactly who we are? Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all else. Would anyone argue with that? We are sinful, rebellious people deserving of judgment and punishment from God. Romans 6 tells us what the punishment is that we deserve. The wages of sin is death. We disobey in open rebellion against a good God. How often, church, do we love what God hates? Or is that just me? Church, in light of this truth, in light of our sinfulness and rebellion against God, we are in need of some good news. There's plenty of bad news to go around. And church, this morning, I have the best news of all. And his name is Jesus. The judgment and sentence that we deserve have been taken from those who turn their allegiance to King Jesus. For those who follow Jesus, our sin and our guilt and the shame we are under has been sent and under the sentence we are under has been nailed to the cross of Christ. Church, we have the best defense attorney that's ever existed. We have a pardon for our sin in full. We are no longer under an old covenant based on our obedience to God, but under a new covenant, one ushered in with the blood of the spotless lamb. The familiar but... Beautiful verses in Romans chapter 3 paints this picture for us perfectly. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in this divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the ones who have faith in Jesus. For all of those who put their faith in Jesus, we have been declared not guilty, saved from the punishment that we deserve. Church, that is great news. Church, that is God's vindication. Now, for those of you with us this morning who have not yet chosen to trust and love and follow Jesus, I would be doing you a disservice not to call you to repentance. I can't preach about the prophet Micah, the seriousness of sin, the judgment on God's people and our judgment to come and leave you with the impression that it's all going to be okay. I don't say this in anger or to manipulate your emotions or coerce. I say it out of love and the truth of God's word that for those of you who choose not to follow Jesus, it won't be okay. That's the truth of the matter. I can't be any more plain than that. And the most loving thing I can do for you this morning is to invite you into relationship with God through his son, Jesus. To have your life transformed by him. That judgment you're under, canceled, pardoned, and full. Talk to me. Talk to a Christian friend. Talk to one of the staff members. We would love to tell you what it means to follow, to trust, and to love Jesus. For those of us who do follow Jesus, we have our eyes set forward on this good news. On the day to come where justice will be done once and for all over all the earth. When Jesus comes again, I will end with a sweet picture of this reality in Revelation 21. We last heard from Jerusalem in our text destroyed, a heap of ruins, plowed like a field, God's people exiled. We come to the present day in Jerusalem as a picture of humanity of hate and division and sin. And yet, we get this good news in Revelation 21, talking about when Jesus comes again. 21, 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. As Jesus followers, we have the good news that Jesus is coming again. He will make all things right. He will usher in a new heavens and a new earth, and yes, even a new Jerusalem. God's people, again, with his presence, and not just in Jerusalem or his promised land, but over all the earth. And that church is really, really good news. Let's pray.